Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. It's my pleasure to welcome Miriam Martinez to the Morning Glory Project. Miriam is a licensed psychotherapist, art therapist, and women's personal life coach. She helps middle-aged women break free from cycles of stuckness and the someday dream and moving into thriving in their lives through the power of self-love and creativity. She holds a passion for helping women get back to who they really are outside of the roles that they've played and thrives on teaching women how to prioritize and treat themselves with the self-compassion and love that they deserve. Miriam's a mom of two children, two fur babies, a wife of an amazing husband, and a lover of nature and of all things beautiful. She's a seeker and an eternal student. But more than that, Miriam also has had her own journey from being a survivor to being someone who helps others survive. Miriam Martinez, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Welcome. Thanks, Betsy. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really, really happy to be here, and I'm so grateful that you invited me to your awesome podcast. Ah, it's my honor to have you. So, Miriam, I, I also am a licensed psychotherapist, and and I know our professional colleagues that that among them, it's not at all surprising that lots of therapists have overcome their own history, that they come to the profession because they have overcome some challenges, and the good ones have done the work and have done have their own healing process and all there 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 are some wounded healers in the world of course but i like to think that that our experience uh of our own challenges is what it helps to equip us in addition to our education and our healing process that that's what equips us to help others can you tell me a bit about your journey Yes, absolutely. Um, I will say, though, that I completely agree with you on everything that you just said. I think that everything um, that comes with us in our journey as therapists and our own personal lives um, informs and shapes how we work with our clients. And it helps humanize us so that our clients can understand that we're just as human as they are. That we're no better or worse. And that's something that I think facilitates healing um, in a really big way. You know, th- doesn't it seem funny that I, I think that a lot of people come to therapists thinking that somehow they are better or that they know more or something. Yeah, yeah. That or sounds perfect. like a difference. 
yeah, perfect. You know, we have it all together. We've never struggled. Like this is kind of easy. Life is kind of easy, you know, kind of a thing. Well, between you and me, I think I'd have a hard time going to a therapist that had never had any troubles. (laughs) (laughs) I completely agree. And at the same time, I'd, I'd have a hard time going to a therapist whose life is a mess. Yes. You know, yes, that's absolutely. the other extreme too, yes, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me a bit about, about your own journey. Yeah, I would love to. Um, it's quite a story. So I was born in Panama, um, of all places. It's a little random here in California. <clears throat> Panamanians um, and Caribbeans usually migrate more towards the East Coast. Mm-hmm. like Miami and New York and stuff. And so it's not common to find a Panamanian here in the West Coast um, where I live. So I've always kind of carried that uniqueness, you know, when I tell people where I'm from and, and whatnot. But my family immigrated here when I was seven to San Francisco. So I was pretty young. And, you know, it was not an easy transition. I was pretty lucky in that... um when I lived in Panama, I went to an, what was called there an American school. So I was able to learn English when I was in kindergarten and mm. was able to practice it. And this is something that was offered to the families that worked for Chiquita Banana, which is who my dad worked for in Panama. So I was lucky in that way. So I came to the States with like some basic English, basically, you know, um, being able to at least get by. I would say things funny. So I would get, you know, like teased about stuff like that. Um, but I, I, I at least could get by and that felt really good. And that's really unique, I think, for, for kids who immigrate to the United States. Most of the time they're coming here without having a clue, you know, what's being said around them and, you know, that kind of a thing. So I feel pretty blessed in that regard. Uh, But yeah, I started second grade in San Francisco and was pretty terrified. That had to be some culture shock. That was, I mean, it was huge. I came from this little small town with dirt roads. (laughs) Like going to the big city was like, let's go to Panama City. You know, like that's when you go to the big city. Um, and Panama City is beautiful. It is a big city. You know, it's a huge metropolis. Um, but yeah, not that's not where I grew up. I grew up in this dirt road kind of countryside area. And so coming to the States was like this shock. I mean, there was like all these cars and all these lights and all this stuff. <laughs> you know, it was just like everywhere. There's concrete everywhere. It felt like. Um, and so certainly the environment was shocking. There was, um, you know, new family to get used to, that, that kind of a thing. And so it was really a rough time, you know, in that regard. But, you know, when I think back on myself at that time, I was really quite the little trooper, you know, because one of the things that I, that I did to survive was um, in San Francisco, there's like these almost like alleyways between houses. The, the houses are pretty close together, you know. Right. If those who don't live in San Francisco, you've probably seen the photographs of houses that are abut each other, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Very little space between houses, if any, you know. But I found a little space between some houses and I hid there for three days. (laughs) And I pretended to go to school because I was so scared and I would come home, you know. um, And part of what was difficult was that my mom had left me here with my sister. She had gone back to Panama to kind of wrap up stuff before the rest of the family came. 
And so there was like this, you know, kind of abandonment piece that was happening, new family, new culture, you know, so I was really overwhelmed as a little one. So I did this incredibly brave thing of hiding between the houses. So you just hid during the school hours. And yeah, I hid during the school hours. And then when I would see the kids start walking, I'd walk home. <laughs> so <clears throat> I did that for a few days, of course, until I got busted. Of course, inevitably, the school's going to call and, you know, try to figure out what's going on. And, you know, I just cried and cried. I remember crying with my sister, just telling her I'm just really scared. And, you know, this is so, so weird. And, you know, I don't know and all that kind of stuff. You know, the insecurities. I was really little. But, I, you know, I slowly I started to, you know, immerse myself in school. And, and not too long after that, you know, my parents came along, uh, along with my little brother so that felt more comforting, you know, to have them there. Uh, we had to live with family, which is such a common thing for immigrants. You had to live with whom? Uh, with my mom's family, my mom's okay. sister. Yeah, my mom's uh, sister and her girls. And again, not an uncommon thing for immigrants, you know, to have to live with family or, or friends or something like that before you can get on your feet. So we lived there for a few years and then um, moved down to Daly City, which is just south of San Francisco and grew up there for a while. Um, but, you know, there was, there was a lot that was happening in my family and, and I've always um, been like this intuitive person, you know, um, I think I was just born with this gift for intuition and I didn't know it then, but I can see it now, certainly, you know, as an older person with more wisdom behind me, but I always just kind of like, I had a sense in my body you know, that something was like off <laughs> in my family, you know, couldn't tell what it was, but there was always like a sense of that in my family. A sense that other people seemed oblivious to? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it really felt like that a lot, but you know, in my body, you know, I could even connect with it now as I'm talking with you. It definitely was like, I don't know, like this, like uncertainty, like something's not safe basically, you know, about this environment. And when I was about 11 years old, I was um, abused by a family member. And it was interesting. Like, it's interesting to think back on that now because, like, my body kind of had, like, this validation in a way. Like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, of course there was, like, this threat, you know, looming in the family that I'm not sure what the rest of the family was doing with, you know, but when it happened to me, it was really life changing, you know, in so many ways as sexual trauma typically is, right? So this was sexual abuse by a family member? Yeah, this is sexual abuse by a family member and, you know, extremely traumatic, you know, and now as a therapist, right, and somebody who worked with trauma, you know, kind of looking back on that and going, wow, look, thinking about like the survival of that, you know, because that's what we're talking about today. Like, how how did I survive that as an 11-year-old child? How did you? <laughs> I don't, I think back, I mean, my first instinct is to say, I don't know, you know, but it's like, no, no, you do know. Um, there was this power, I think, that always existed in me that, you know, wasn't going to allow for my needs to be dismissed on that level or to be intruded upon on that level. And so I did verbalize it. I did, you know, call it out. So you told? Yeah, I told. That was one of the things that, that I did write, you know. And whom did you tell? Um, well, what's, the, what's interesting about the story is that it was um, a huge family gathering um, around Thanksgiving, actually. And I... When it happened, I 
broke free and ran down the hall and just started screaming at everybody that, you know, something had happened to me. And, you know, so it was very public, actually, what I did, you know, so there was no, um, yeah, there was no sense of that anything about that was wrong. Like everything about what was happening to me felt wrong. And it felt really right to be able to like, speak that, you know, and ask for help in that way. And what was the reception? Well, I don't really remember a lot of the night of, because I think I was just kind of like tucked away into a room, like go to sleep, you know, whatever. Um, And I stayed with my sister overnight. And so I'm super curious about that as an adult, you know, because as a mother myself, it makes me wonder like what was going on with my mom, you know, that made her feel like that was the right thing to do, you know, after going through something like that. So I stayed, I stayed with my sister and, you know, there was really not much said. I don't really remember anybody ever really saying anything about it to me. I mean, my mom's response was kind of like, are you sure, you know, did this happen? That was asked several times, you know, I kind of stuck with, of course, I'm sure, you know, yes, I know this happened. Um, But that was kind of it. I don't really have any any other memories, you know, of anybody else saying or doing anything. Um, I can remember going back to school and feeling like really out of my body, like not in my body at all, kind of. Let me linger there for a minute. Yeah. Because that's something that a lot of abuse survivors say, mm-hmm. that they felt out of their body. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me more what that, for those who maybe haven't experienced that, what is that like? Well, you know, when I think back on it, you know, and again, as an 11 year old, I didn't know that what was happening to me, you know, but as a therapist and as a grown up, I can look back and, and when I connect to myself as an 11 year old, I can remember feeling kind of like an out of body experience, almost like I was hovering above myself a little bit, you know, and feeling like really lost and like, you know, like not very grounded on the earth, you know, just kind of spinning a little bit. Um, yeah, that's a lot of what I remember, but there was no, nothing to do with that. Like there was nowhere to go with that. Yeah. yeah. What, what I think about when I hear people say I was sort of out of my body, to me, that just implies at first, that's a really adaptive thing to do, right? It wasn't so safe to be in your body. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was a, a wise and good thing that your psyche did for you. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Thank you for saying that. Beth, you know, I think it's important for anybody listening to know that. As opposed to that being a neurotic or weird thing to be, that was a very adaptive and healthy thing at that point. But the difficult, it's kind of like, um, shell shock or or PTSD, like in the moment, the thing happening is adaptive. But if, as you grow, if you can't kind of reunite your psyche and your body again, it gets troublesome. Yes, absolutely. The adaptive thing becomes maladaptive over time. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, again, I can look at that and look at the courage of my brain and my body, you know, and what it needed to do at that time, you know, to survive Mm -hmm. that experience for sure. And I certainly have grown to have a lot of compassion, you know, for that young self that had to be alone with that um, in that big way. But as is so common, I think, with any kind of trauma, really, but certainly trauma in childhood, is for there to be a development then of an inner voice that says, I'm I'm the problem. 
Well, you were sent away after all, right? The thing yeah. happened to you, but rather than the perpetrator sent away, you were sent away. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so what else would a child conclude? <laughs> right, exactly. There's not a lot of choice, you know. And, you know, what was difficult about it was that, you know, this is someone that I had to keep seeing in my family because kind of like the family code, you know, so to speak, um, which I think is actually, you know, in, in a lot of ways, kind of like the cultural code, you know. And what was the family code? The family code was don't make waves, don't ruffle feathers, don't, you know, we don't want to upset people. Just be nice. Yep. Just be nice. Just, you know, it's, it's not that bad. <laughs> just keep going, you know? And I remember feeling like really confused. And there was a couple of times, you know, when I was a little bit older, like closer to 14, where I really challenged my mom, like, but why, why do I have to go to this thing, this party, whatever it was, you know? And it was, you know, constantly the same response. Well, we don't want to upset anybody, you know. We don't want to upset your aunt, you know. I mean, it's her husband, so we don't want to upset her. You know, it was just kind of like, I look back on that and go, holy, wow. You know, like the protection of the of the perpetrator and how often that is an experience for women, you know. And how women tend to blame themselves, obviously, you know, because of that. Um, and they don't understand these survival instincts like freezing, you know, as survival instincts, they go back to thinking that they've done something wrong because their body has protected them in some way. Right? Or not only that they've done something wrong, but that they are something wrong. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong. Yeah, I'm broken. Yeah, I'm broken, I'm broken. I'm damaged, you know. And how did that manifest for you then in your teen years? Yeah, I mean, I think back, it's like 11 is so young, you know what I mean? And to start, right. you know, I mean, 12 is already like a really hard age. You know, I work with kids and and I have kids and, you know, 12 to 14 can be a real doozy, you know, as it is because it's such a huge developmental stage, you know. Um, so it was already challenging, um, but immediately it just turned into, it, I, I'm I'm terrible. I'm a piece of shit. It's me. I'm a terrible kid, you know what's wrong with me, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it slowly started to evolve into self-harm. So I was probably about 14 when I started cutting, 14, 15 when I started cutting. So again, for listeners, it sounds like such a strange thing that one would harm herself. And, and that cutting is such a mysterious and strange thing for people to understand. Can, can you explain just a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I want to speak to it, you know, both, if I could, Betsy, both from my personal experience, and then, you know, what I understand about it as a therapist. Of course. Um, but, you know, my own personal experience of it, like, when I think back on when I was doing that, um, I remember, like, that it helped me feel, because my body was so locked down, you know, and like, stuck and kind of frozen that when I would cut on myself, I would feel something and I could control it. I could control the sensation. You know, I could decide how much, how little. Oh, let, let's stop there for a second, because I think that's really important for folks to understand. People that, that look at somebody who might do self-harm, and, and I've worked with people who have cut themselves or burned themselves, different kinds of mm -hmm, self-mutilative mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. And you're saying two things that are really super important. One is that you felt something. In other words, there was numbness. Your body had numbed out. Your mm -hmm. psyche had numbed your body and your psyche out. Mm -hmm. So you, there's a craving to feel alive. And so there's when you feel a, a sense of physical pain, it 
validates that you're alive, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and there's such an irony in that, obviously, you know, because there was another part of me that was also really self-punishing, you know? It, it's kind of a, a two for one. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and then the other part of it, though, that, that also it was aliveness that you were in control of. Mm-hmm. So when control has been taken away from you here, you claim some in, in a twisted way, of course. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's, it's, it's ironic. It, you know, on, on the surface, it looks like madness. It looks like craziness. Like, that doesn't make any sense. But I think, you know, when you look at it through the lens of how our body survives and what it needs to do to survive trauma, you know, and challenging experiences, it makes a whole lot of sense, you mm-hmm. know. So as a therapist, you know, I know that this is a very common thing that kids talk about you know, that they are so overwhelmed or they're so depressed or they just, you know, they have so much going on that their body feels really shut down. And weirdly, you know, <laughs> I'll just say it because it is, it is weird. Psych- psych- psychology and, you know, how our brain works can look, really, can look really weird on the surface, but that's what they describe oftentimes too. Like it's a way to feel and it's a way to have control, Right. I don't think that's across the board. I'm not a specialist, you know, by any means in this area. No, but it's it's a theme that I've heard. You're articulating it more clearly than I generally hear it, but it's a theme that I've heard a lot from folks who have been self-harming. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, other people choose other methods, whether it's chemical dependency or whether it's, you know, taking, doing high risk behaviors. Yes. Or- and for me, I think it just kind of kept escalating for sure. You know, I mean, it started with cutting and... You know, what's interesting to me is, you know, going from like being an A and B student to going to like a D and F student. And and that's what happened after this incident. of Yeah. Years. Yeah. It just kind of kept going. You know, now I'm in my teen years going through high school, really struggling because, you know, I, I, I feel totally lost. I, I, I can't really connect with people. I have PTSD and I don't know it. Well, it's kind of hard to study algebra when you're out of your body. <laughs> Exactly. It's really hard. It's really hard to just even be, you know what I mean? Just like show up every day. And it just, you know, was building and building and building. And I just kept feeling worse and worse and worse, like feeling more depressed. Because of course, you know, if your grades start going down, that's like as a kid, that's almost like the one thing that like shows people that like, you're someone, I guess. I don't know. That's a terrible thing to say. But yeah, and so once your grades start going down, it's like, oh gosh, you know, what's going on? What's wrong with you? What's, you know, but it's more like from the angle of criticism. And I noticed that in the work that I do, you know, with the parents that I work with a lot, you know, that it often comes through the lens of criticism rather than curiosity about what could it be that's making this child go from an AB student to a DF student. So that was your way of coping as a kid. And then I know from our earlier conversation that you took a stand with your family. Mm-hmm. Well, there's one more stepping stone to that, you know, um, and and that is that once once I hit late teens and kind of like my senior year, you know, um, and, you know, this is like when you start looking at your future and, you know, all that kind of stuff, it, it became increasingly overwhelming. So I actually attempted suicide when I was about 17, Um, a few months shy of graduating high school. And, you know, it was a big deal, uh, obviously, in my family uh, for something like that to happen. But 
it, it felt like it almost kind of needed to escalate, you know, at that level. And as a therapist, you know, when I work with kids and parents, when it gets that level, it's like, how much further do you want them to go before you listen? Right. It's kind of the question that pops into my head a lot and that I do ask parents, like, is this enough? <laughs> is this enough of a message or, you know, do you need to see something more happen here? Um, That's an important question, isn't it? Yeah, because as a, as a parent, as a therapist, it's like children are constantly telling us, you know, in all of these different ways, what's happening for them in their lives and their bodies, you know, and their emotional experience. You know, um, and if we're not paying attention, if we're not looking at, you know, putting these pieces together, then the kid suffers, you know, um, alone a lot of the time. But again, it's also difficult, Betsy, because, you know, you're dealing with like, a, you know, multi-generational systemic patterns, you know. And, and deep cultural patterns. Too. Yeah, deep cultural patterns, et cetera, you know. So it's not that I'm letting my family off the hook. <laughs> I've had a lot of therapy and I've processed this a lot. It's kind of more like I've gotten to a place of like, oh yeah, I can totally see why this happened or how it happened, you know, in this way. Um, but that was like a big stand that I took, you know, and I was, I was kind of lucky. I mean, it sounds crazy, right? But like that was what set me off to start living again. Right. Because I was hospitalized for two weeks, you know, put on a hold um, and I did a lot of, you know, group therapy. And I was in a, a home, you know, with kids who were like far worse off than I was, like severe suicidality, um, you know, multiple attempts, like severe scars, you know, like really intense kind of stuff. But it was a, a really um, important thing for me to be there because. You know, there was a therapist there who talked about how he had been a struggling teen and I began to kind of see myself and I began to see maybe even a future. So you've been cutting and people didn't pay attention. First of all, you said this happened, they ignored it. Then you started harming yourself. That got either not noticed or dismissed. Mm -hmm. The grades stunk. Mm -hmm. All of the teenage angst stuff that, that some people can just attribute to teenagehood, but that there was much more going on here. Mm -hmm. And then a suicide attempt that lands you in a, in a hospital that gets you the therapy that you need. That's the moment that you were able to see that there was a different option for a future? Yeah. I mean, it, it felt really good to be with other kids who were in pain. Like, it was the first time that I didn't feel, like, alone, you know? Um, and there were, like I said, there were kids with far, you know, worse circumstances, um, and that offered some perspective, you know? Um, not a not a pain comparison kind of thing, Betsy, but kind of more like, whoa, <laughs> that really sucks. You know, <laughs> you've been in multiple group homes or, you know, whatever, that kind of a thing, whereas I'd had, you know, a mom and dad and siblings and stuff. Um, but... Yeah, it was really important to feel like a part of a community, like, oh, we're all like a bunch of nuts in here together, you know, and we love that, you know, all of us teens were like, would make fun of it and laugh and, you know, we'd sit in group and, you know, be silly and, you know, but at the, at the same time really connect, you know, around why we were there and the depths of our pain, you know. 
Well, you're finding your tribe. Yeah, in a, in a weird way. Yeah, it was a, a real tribe and, you know, a real community. Um, and again, you know, the therapists that were leading this program, you know, I can still see them in my head. And, and this one, like I said, therapist had talked about how he had struggled. It, it was like he planted a little seed in me of hope, you know, like, oh, so you can struggle and you can get out of it and you can do something with this, you know, it was like the first time, you know, um, and we started doing, uh, they call it occupational therapy, right? As an art therapist, I know that it was art therapy. Um, but we did some occupational therapy. And I, I began like doing like some painting. And, you know, I think I told you offline that I had found this little ceramic seal that I painted that became like my little token of healing, you know, I painted it and glazed it and fired it, you know, so it was like this caretaking experience that was happening. But it was the beginning of like considering that there could be another way of being, you know, I mean, it took me many, many more years, you know, I don't want to simplify the situation at all. I was hospitalized one more time after that. Um, I still struggled with not loving myself, with hating myself, with, with wondering how anybody could love me, how anybody, you know, could think about me. Um, I remember my, my therapist, I had already started seeing a therapist at the time and she was the one that hospitalized me the second time. So I was uber pissed at her, you know, Hmm. but she came to visit me at the hospital. And I remember like sitting at the window and she came to visit me and, and she said, you know, how are you? Whatever. And I was like, just looking at her with like the most confused look that you could ever imagine, Betsy. (laughs) Like, I don't understand why you're here. And she's like, well, because I care. And and she might as well would have been speaking some other foreign language. I was like, I don't get it. So you found it confusing to have somebody care for you? Yes. I I completely did not understand that at that time. I I, I didn't get it. I I couldn't experience it in my body. I couldn't experience caring in my body. Hmm. It was like I, I thought I was so low that it was, there's no way, you know, that I could be worthy of somebody's love you know, an affection. So these mentors <laughs> appeared for you, yes. people that either inspired you by their example or by their caring or both. Then that did get you brave enough to make a stand with your family. Yes. I continued to see this therapist who I loved and adored. Um, and, you know, we worked on, you know, some of the stuff that was happening in my family. And yes, I finally decided that, um, I didn't want to be in that system anymore. You know, like that wasn't going to work anymore to, to be in a system where what happened to me um, was going to be treated as if it hadn't happened or as if it wasn't important or, or worse, you know, that we were going to prioritize the needs, you know, of a, of a perpetrator, you know, over the needs of, of the victim. And so very, very bravely, I slowly began to tell my family little by little, you know, basically, this is my boundary, right? Um, It's him or me. (laughs) Hmm. If you guys want to continue to have him in your life, that's great, you know, good for you. uh, But I will not be in it. And by that, you meant you wouldn't be in the same gatherings, you wouldn't... I wouldn't participate. And I, you know, I was pretty young still, Betsy, I was probably like 20. Two twenty three, barely even that. So still pretty scared, you know what I mean? Um, but definitely prepared to like not have anybody in my life anymore. 
I, I was that done at that time. Like if, if this means that, that everybody will say, well, sorry, we choose him, then I was very prepared to walk away. You were not bluffing. I was not bluffing. And what was the result? Well, it was messy, you know, for a while, because I can imagine, you know, this kind of stagnant, algae-filled pond (laughs) that's been sitting there a while. And then, like, this big rock comes and just splashes right in the middle of it and starts moving stuff around and ripples out and, you know, oh, my goodness. It's disruptive. So disruptive to the system, you know, but I kept working with my therapist, you know, around, like, like how powerful that was, that I could do that, that I could take that stand, that I could take that stand for myself, that I could take that stand in my family. So it was very powerful work that I did with her in that regard. And it's interesting because I just kept fighting, you know, I just kept fighting. And even though I still felt terrible about myself, like the depression was really, really, really strong, you know, I I still made a decision to go to school right, to go to college. I worked. Um, so I, I paid for school on my own. I have the loans to prove it. <laughs> so I, I started to kind of slowly decide, like, I got to do something because I can't stay here. You know, um, even though I took some time off, you know, from school after I graduated high school, just because I could finally have some freedom, you know, um, being 18 and that kind of stuff. It didn't take me very long, maybe one semester. <laughs> it didn't take me very long to say, whoa, if, if you want to like do something with your life, you're going to need to go back to school. You know, you have to go to school, you have to get a degree, you know, this isn't going to work, etc. So there was always like this drive, you know, to do more for sure and to live. You know, as you're, as you're talking Miriam, I'm I'm just admiring how strong that drive is for you. Mm-hmm. Even from little that the little girl that came out and screamed, mm-hmm. the person who even harmed herself to get attention, the, the, did did what she needed to do. It's really quite a heroic story. And there are those in your circumstances who perhaps are not as boisterous, as not as not as bold as you are. Um, but I'm I'm always hopeful that they can eventually find a way to express their courage too. In our limited time remaining, I want to ask you about the work you do because that seems to kind of come along with this. It sounds like that's what you're trying to help people do. No, it's like it's actually it's actually the perfect bridge. You know that the question is the perfect bridge because that's exactly what I was thinking was that I kept working with this therapist and I kept working with this therapist and I kept having this drive, you know, and I would do things like write myself love letters and, you know, all this stuff to like really work on like, like I knew that loving myself was, you know, going to be the key, you know, um, to my freedom basically. Uh, and so I became a therapist and I became specifically an art therapist because I really believe in the power of art and creativity, you know, and healing. And, I did the work with kids and families, and I still do that work, you know, for a really long time. Uh, and I've been doing that for almost going on 17 years now. Yikes. <laughs> That's a long time to be doing the work. And in that work, you know, it, it was really beautiful and continues to be really beautiful because that work is about teaching parents about their children 
teaching parents about what behavior is and isn't and how to identify and decode behavior so that they can understand if there's something up with their child and then like promote that parent-child bond. So that part is extremely powerful for me. Um, and I've been doing that for a long time and probably will continue to do so. And if I can get one kid out there on the planet that has parents that can get them and understand them, you know, and know how to respond to them and attune to them, then I feel like I've done a good job in the world. Um, the other part is that in that work, one of the themes that I kept noticing was this theme of like a, a tired, depressed, exhausted, not feeling good about herself mom. Mm. And that was a very common theme. And eventually the kid work would lead to working with the mom and dealing with issues of self-esteem and, you know, self-worth and not feeling good enough and all that kind of stuff. And so my work has morphed more now, you know, in terms of how I work with women into doing more of coaching. So I'm also a women's personal life coach and I work with women to move out of stuckness, that feeling of, you know, I, I can't do this thing I want to do, or I don't have motivation or, you know, someday, someday when the kids are older, right. Or whatever, whatever the someday deferring is. their own needs. Yeah, exactly. There's something I have to get past, you know, before I can start living my life, you know, kind of thing. Um, and really, really empower them to recognize that this is their life you know, and that's how I feel right now in my life. It's like, holy crap, I just told Betsy this whole story and that's my life and it's amazing and it's beautiful. And despite all that pain, right, that I can land in this place and like, you can too. As you're, as you're talking, Miriam, I'm, oh gosh, I just want to talk for another hour, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about how you, I've always said to people that as a parent, our children don't get their self-esteem by what we tell them, by only by what we tell them about them, by telling them they're wonderful and they're loved. That's part of it. But they also watch how we treat ourselves. And I think that for women, particularly for their daughters, if you tell your daughter she's beautiful and she's she can do anything, but you deprive yourself, you're teaching her that that's what self-esteem is, is to deprive herself. And so it sounds to me like you're kind of, not technically speaking, but you're kind of reparenting these moms, giving them the self-worth, giving them the, the encouragement, encouraging their own valuing of themselves so that they in turn show that to their kids too. No, I love it. I think that's the perfect way of framing it. And I don't think you're off in that. I mean, I feel like so much of our work towards healing is re learning to reparent ourselves yeah. and working through any feelings, you know, around that. Um, but certainly in my work with women, I, I often feel like as women, you know, because we're trained to just give, give, give and make it about other people, you know, from such a early age, that we do get to that place where we're so depleted. You know, I hear that from women so much, like, you know, who takes care of me and I'm tired and, you know, and it's like, well, I hate to tell you, but you take care of you. And I know that's hard, but you can do this and you can reparent yourself and help yourself heal and become 
whole again, you know? And this is just as relevant for dads. Oh, completely. Uh, to, to, of course, to take care of themselves, but also to, if they're raising daughters or if they have a female partner, that they can tune into this as a dynamic as well. No, I completely agree with that. Miriam, your story is so moving and so touching, and I'm so glad that you're doing the work that you do and glad that you were born with whatever that spark was <laughs> that helped you to get through what you got through and that you had the mentors come along to help and support that. Thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. And those that want to reach Miriam in any way, they can find her at her website, which is miriammartinezcoaching.com. That's Miriam, M-Y-R-A-M, Martinez ending with a Z, coaching.com. Miriam, thank you so much for visiting with me today. I look forward to our future conversations. Thanks, Betsy. It's been wonderful to talk to you. My conversation with Miriam Martinez left me with all kinds of extra blooms, but I'm going to focus. And the one that I'm going to focus on is this. Years ago, I wrote a poem that was a single line that I repeated over and over again with a different word emphasized. And the sentence was, if you listen when I whisper, I will not have to shout. If you listen when I whisper, I will not have to shout. If you listen when I whisper, I will not have to shout. You know, sometimes our pain, our worry, our anxiety, our struggles, our suffering, even being a victim of violence or sexual violence, sometimes it's a whisper that we just tell somebody. And if they don't listen, the volume gets louder. And that's when a whole bunch of other problems ensue. And whether you're a parent or not, whether you're a survivor of abuse or not, being in love relationships with other people, sometimes they whisper for a long time before they ever shout. Tuning in, really knowing somebody, paying attention, asking for more, delving deeper, asking beyond the, no, I'm fine. It takes compassion to do that and diligence, but that's what love is, right? If we listen, when they whisper, they will not have to shout. That's my extra bloom for today. Thanks so much for listening to The Morning Glory Project. And I hope that wherever you are, you're finding your way to bloom.